Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to continue our Ephesians class. And I just want to say, by the way, the Gospels class, it's starting next week. I'm really excited. Uh, I'm going to do Matthew, Mark, and John, and uh, Dan's going to teach Luke. And we're just going to have a blast with that. So if you are really familiar with your Bible, you've read it your whole life, I still hope to kind of blow your mind on some stuff next week. Um, and if you don't know anything about your Bible, never heard the story of Jesus, come and you're going to get uh, a whole bunch of great stuff on the story of Jesus leading up to Easter. We're going to have a great time with that. Come to church at 9 and then to the class at 11 if you are interested. Um, now, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm so excited about this passage. Um, and as you're turning there, um, I just got to say, I'm one of those drivers uh, that is always right. Uh, do you know what I mean? You, you ever that kind of person where you're, just, you're right? Like, it doesn't matter if you're wrong. You're right about that decision behind the wheel. And uh, anyway, I, you know, I tend to be kind of proud of my sense of direction, too. And uh, last year on the drive out to the men's retreat, I kind of I blew uh, all sense of pride there. Um, so I, I was the passenger in our little journey out to Washington Family Ranch, about three and a half hours away. And uh, as the passenger, I had one job, right? Get us there, right? Tell the driver where to turn. And I happened to be driving with Doug Groth, who is our church planner in Poland. His entire adult life has been spent in Europe. So not the guy to go to for directions out into the middle of nowhere. Um, anyway, so love Doug. He was faithfully driving, trusting me on our way out there. And if you know the drive, you take 84, like a long ways out, and then turn at this very little town called Biggs, which is an ironic kind of name. And so, anyways, it happened to be that we were enjoying our conversation, talking about leadership and church and our stories and our families and all kinds of stuff, and just loving the scenery, completely enraptured in the scenery of the gorge. And about 30 miles past Biggs, I started thinking, man, Ron Carlson's directions are completely bogus, you know? Like, what is his deal? He shouldn't send people out into the middle of the nowhere with wrong directions. Of course, I checked my phone and realized Ron wasn't right, wasn't wrong, he was completely right, and I missed the turn at Biggs, and, uh, cause it was Smalls. And so, anyway, um, when you realize you're 30 miles in the wrong direction, you have two choices. One, you can say, I think we're going to go with a new destination. Let's go and have lunch in Pendleton, right? Or uh, Spokane, like, let's just keep going. And, or, you could, or you could say, I messed up. I'm headed the wrong direction. Let's turn around. And of course, when you're that far out, it's like another 10 miles to the next off-ramp. And so, anyways, we made the choice to turn around, and I chose to fill up Doug's gas tank because I felt pretty bad. Anyway... Uh, we are engaging this text this morning that is, is, is telling us a story about humanity. That is essentially saying we have all been headed confidently in the wrong direction, content with our scenery, and completely ignorant to our co- captivity, to deception and folly. Um, we're picking up uh, in the book of Ephesians on the heels of two prayers. Paul has just prayed this wonderful, amazing 202-word blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, including our redemption, the forgiveness of sins, including the guarantee of what is to come, the Spirit of God sealing us, living 
in and with us. And then followed by this prayer that Carl taught on last week, where Paul prays for the people to know God, the intimate kind of knowledge of God, the relational knowledge of God, that we would know Him and the power of God for those who believe, the power that rose Jesus from the dead, exalted Him to the Father's right hand and over every rule and power that is named. And so this is where we pick up in Ephesians 2, verse 1. Read along with me. If you would stand to your feet and read with me. I am reading, by the way, typically when you're hearing from me up front, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. That's the ESV. So that's why there's some maybe translation differences from the NIV. Don't worry about it. Just follow along. Here we go. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. What an amazing passage, Paul Uh, the author of this letter has just prayed for the listener, the reader, to know the power of God, right? That raised Christ from the dead, exalted him, and now he is reminding us of the incredible change that God has effected in our life. He's saying, Christ, through Christ, you've been raised from the dead, right? Spiritually, you are spiritually dead, but because of his great love, he's raised us up Paul is essentially saying you are in new territory now. You are in a new country. As Eugene Peterson says, you are in resurrection country. That your landscape is now defined and described by the life and resurrection of Jesus because God has merged his destiny with your destiny because of his grace. And Paul is also saying things have not always been this way. In fact, to show us how incredible the power of God is for those who believe, Paul tells us the facts of our situation right, in such a way that we can't help but get excited and be amazed and awed and grateful to God for what he's done. So Paul shows us a couple of key truths in this passage about the reality of what God has done for us in King Jesus, that is, Christ Jesus. The first thing we see, if you're a note-taking person, uh, first line here is that we see the plight of people apart from God. The plight of people apart from God. He begins by saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
you were dead. So do you think of yourself as having been dead? Like we tend to think of this as a future tense thing, right? Like there's a point where I will die. I don't think I've been dead yet, right? I think I'd know, right? No, Paul's saying you were dead. This is a past tense thing. He's talking about a death of the spirit, a death of relationship, right? And so he's contrasting the way things were and the way things are. You were dead. You have been made alive, right? He's saying up until now, up until God reached into your life, right? Then you, you were dead. You're a walking dead person. Now, zombie movies are all the rage nowadays, right? Um, I think it kind of started in the 60s and has kind of come back again. And so you've got TV shows like The Walking Dead or you've got movies, uh, you know, like I Am Legend or Zombieland, which is my favorite because it's not that gory and uh, has Bill Murray playing Bill Murray, which is pretty funny. So, um, or if you're hanging out in Portland, you've obviously seen some kind of Subaru Outback with a bumper sticker that says zombie outbreak survival vehicle. And you're like, we should go to coffee. I'd, lo- I'd love to know what's going on inside your, your head. Like, what's going on, man? Like, you live in terror of something that I, I doubt will happen. Well, anyways, you, we have this kind of fascination with zombie films, zombie lore. It's kind of interesting in, in, if, if paying attention to culture, there's kind of this resurgence of interest in zombies. Why is it? I, I don't think it's because of the suspense or the special effects. I, I actually think it's about social commentary. Um, that, that zombie films are resonating with a populace that knows something. They, they know that a lot of people really aren't living. Right? Or that they are living kind of enslaved to some kind of you know, materialistic kind of consumerism or, or an individualism that just kind of devours other people. And so people exist just consuming and devouring to get ahead and um, not really living, not really sensitized to the world of relationships and love and the things that God is about. And so having zero connection with today's zombies, Paul is effectively saying you were walking dead people, right? You were not alive in any real spiritual sense. And so like a zombie, there was a deadness to God that then distorted your humanity, bent you inwards toward self and cut you off in relationship to God, self, others, and the world in any kind of real alive sort of way. And so what on earth did this spiritual death consist of? Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. These are probably not words we use every day, like, well, I was trespassing the other day. Um, right, but this is, this is, Paul is bringing together two words to kind of create one concept of the full range of possible human evil, Right? He's saying trespasses, which are basically you're kind of, you're, you're stepping over a line. You're crossing a boundary that God has set up and said, this is what is good for humanity, right? And you've kind of said, I'm going to be my own moral authority. I'm going to decide what's good from my own finite perspective, and I'm going to trespass. I'm going to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. And sins is your general missing the mark kind of word. We've missed the mark of what God has exalted as right and good and honoring and healthy and robust for life. And so because of all of this trespassing and sin that we were walking in, we were dead. We were dead. So because we walked in trespasses and sins, we're dead, not all, or not mostly dead, but all dead. You know, like there's, 
No Billy Crystal saying, mostly dead, right? This is, you were all dead. Dead to God. Your relationship there was broken, severed, cut off. Dead to self. Distorted view of self. Either far too low and depressed or far too exalted and arrogant. Either way, distorted view of self. Messed up view of others. Distorted relationships with people and an exploitive relationship with the creation. Everything. Sin works out in every direction in our life. Causing death is what Paul's saying. And then he says, we're walking in them. Now, to walk in the Jewish idiom of Paul's day was a metaphor for your daily conduct in life. This is like how you acted in terms of obedience and disobedience to the covenant standards of the God of Israel. And so in Leviticus 18.3, God invites the, or says to the people, walk or do not walk as they do in the land of Canaan. Okay, he's not referencing Run DMC here. He is actually, he's talking about our conduct, the way we live. And so don't live in the same way. Live free from idolatry and impurity and sin. Walk in the way of the Lord, which is righteousness and justice, which is about bringing shalom and peace and blessing. And so Paul is saying here that You were living a daily life, a conduct, a walk that was away from God. Confident you were headed down the wrong direction, wrong road, content with the scenery. He says that's what was going on. Now, you might want to say, well, I did good stuff before I surrendered my life to Jesus. And I would say absolutely, and Paul would absolutely agree, great stuff. But trespass and sin is not primarily about a moral list of do's and don'ts. Trespass and sin is about heart conditions. It's about our relatedness to God. How are we related to him? Are we moving toward him in trust and love and loyalty, moving away from him? And you can be a fantastic person, moral to the hilt, externally just just spotless in terms of how you treat people, what you do, but inside can be full of trespass and sin because you're doing it for yourself. You're a self-righteous person rather than just a a God-grace-righteous person. And so what Paul is saying is the whole trajectory of our lives was away from God, not toward him. He's not saying every act and every word and every feeling you had was like checking off some bad list, but it was about our hearts moving away from God which is what sin and trespass is all about. And so he's saying, there you were, confidently running down this road, content with the scenery, confident of your correctness, maybe. And then he goes further and tells us, not only were we walking dead, right, walking in trespass and sin, but we were under the influence, under the influence of three incredibly powerful forces. And this is what Paul gets into. So again, if you're taking notes, one, two, and three here are your... Influences The first controlling influence Paul mentions, cheering you on down this road, saying, come this way, walk this way, right, is the world. He says, following the course of this world. The Greek phrase here is according to the age of this world. The age of this world this brings together two concepts. The present age, which the Bible says is passing away. That is an age controlled and dominated and under the bondage of evil and darkness, right? And it is passing away. The age to come is the age uh, where Christ reigns and the present world as well. This is society organized away from God, society apart from God. Now, how do you tell the difference between 
the age of this world and right the kingdom of God and the age to come, it's very simple. You look at what is your notion of success. Jesus comes along and says, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you about the age to come, the society where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, be generous, be forgiving, right? Uh, In fact, help those that society says throw away and on and on and on, right? Go look at Matthew 5 through 7. There is this amazing open window to what the kingdom of God looks like in terms of our everyday life. But then the world comes along and says, actually, the mark of success is get back at people, In fact, accumulate as much stuff as you can and keep it for yourself. And trample over anybody that gets in the way of your ambition, particularly if they're weaker than you. It's their own fault. And so this goal and this notion of success is contrasted, of course, with what is to come. The age to come, where we see in Ephesians 2.7, where in the coming age, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness will be shown in the kingdom of God. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 1.4. He says that um, Jesus is the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. The world is something that Jesus is working to save us from, and the world from, right? 1.13, sorry, Colossians 1.13. Paul says, God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And here again, Jesus' heart for the world, John 12, 46 through 47. I have, not come in, or I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. All right? And so here we have the course of this world. It's affirming to us all the time that the road away from God is absolutely right, right? And it's telling us what success looks like. And it's saying, you know what? If you're rich and you're good looking and you are successful, then you are headed down this road and you're doing great. Well, what does that say to all of us, right? Most of us are not like that, right? And the kingdom of God comes around, flips that in the inverse and says, actually, it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. It's those who mourn. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's those who are peacemakers on and on. Jesus' list goes. And so the world is out there saying, go ahead, this scenery is alluring and it's wonderful. Keep coming down this road. Now, this is also because the world has a sponsor. The world has a sponsor, has a leader. Uh, Look at what Paul says. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in other words, the world has a ruler, that current system that says God doesn't matter. Your own story is all that matters. Has a a leader. And and it says the prince of the power of the air. Well, who is that? It's the Satan, right? The accuser, the enemy of the people of God, right? He is the second controlling influence. All right. He's mentioned a few times here in Ephesians, uh, particularly 4.27 and 6.12. He is called the devil. Right? Uh, in 6.16, he's called the evil one. Here in 2.2, he is the ruler or the prince of this world. Jesus uh, calls him the ruler of this world in John 12. And then in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is called the ruler of demons. Does he sound like a good guy or a bad guy? Bad guy. Right, bad guy. <laughs> Don't... Don't go with this guy, right? 
And Paul says that he, his domain is the air. All right? He's not talking about oxygen. He is talking about the sphere of spiritual forces all right, and where they rule. It connects to this present age and this world system. And there are two important things that you should know in dealing with this second influence. First of all, give the devil some credit. Okay? We often operate as if there is no other external force in our life trying to push or pull us in any direction. It's kind of all about us, right? Give the devil some credit. He wants to thwart and deceive, and that is his key role. He's got one simple game. Thwart the people of God with deception and lies, and, uh, and he's powerful. Now, secondly, don't give the devil too much credit. Give him a little, don't give him too much, okay? I, I don't think there's a devil behind every bush. Some bushes, yes. Not every bush, Okay? And so, uh, don't give him too much credit. He's a defeated foe. Jesus has said he's conquered the enemy, right? Satan is crushed, and he is trying to take some uh, casualties while he can, but his fate is sealed, okay? This is not a guy that's going to win. He's already lost. Jesus has triumphed over him in the cross and resurrection, okay? And so, um, here we, we, we actually... Uh, only give him power in our lives when we open ourselves up to deception and sin. Okay? And so when you do that, what do you do? Confess your sin and repent and turn around and get some truth into your heart and head and mind. Okay? So Jesus is saying, look, while this is a controlling influence in the world, the glory of this passage is you've actually been delivered from his grip, which means he doesn't have the final word in your life. This is amazing stuff. Keep in mind, though, his game is simple. He's going to try to get you with, did God really say? Do you really want to go to Biggs? Like, you don't really want to go back to Biggs. Let's go to Pendleton, right? So, devil's always saying go to Pendleton. No, um, all right, so keep in, go east. There you go. Ties into your biblical theology of east. All right, um, now, uh, there's, con- there's this constant kind of uh, game that he plays that he's been doing since Genesis 3. Did God really say? God's trying to hold off, hold out some kind of good from you. Right? And so he wants to attack trust and faith, which leads to obedience. All right, next thing, the third controlling influence we see is the flesh. All right, so Paul says, verse 3, among whom, right, those are the sons of disobedience. That's a nice way of saying people who are disobedient. All right, we were among those people, right? We all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Since the beginning of Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul's <clears throat> excuse me, been playing this little word game with you and we. And if you're paying attention to it, you recognize that Paul is a Jewish author and he's writing to Gentile, that is, non-Jewish people. And so he, he is saying, you Gentiles, right? We're dead. And then we all, Jewish people as well, were once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And so he's saying, essentially, there is no difference in your religious heritage. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish, if you're Gentile. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. All of us are under sin. No one's hands are clean when it comes to matters of trespass and sin. And that's what Paul's saying here. Okay? So there are not some who are just morally superior and better than others. We're all on level ground, okay? And it is all equally condemned ground, right? And so 
We all then lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and by nature, children of wrath. Whoa. What does this mean? The flesh is the New Testament word for, like, this stuff, right? Body, sarks, and fleshly stuff. It is also theologically about the, the inward bent, fallen, self-centered human nature. So NIV translates it sinful nature. More literally, it's flesh, but same kind of idea. It is that natural inclination to run down the wrong road and like be completely confident in it and not even care. Okay? And it is very powerful. It's incredibly powerful on our walking in the wrong direction. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And as Christians, I see this all the time, we're really good at playing the blame game on world and devil and have lots of excuses for the flesh. Right? It is all the movies people are watching. They're watching zombie movies, obviously, people. <laughs> or it's that devil. He's bad. He's a real bad guy. Like, yes, he is a bad guy. Right? But what is closest to home in all three of these? Certainly the world is the air we breathe. The devil has forces all around, of course. But God's, again, delivered you from his grasp, domain of the evil one, into the kingdom of the Son. You've been transferred. But what's closest to home here? The flesh. You carry it with you. Okay? It's incredibly powerful. And there's all kinds of... Um, uh, excuses that we love to make and the spirit of God is more powerful than the flesh in fact and they are pitted against each other God's spirit and our flesh and the spirit is where there is life and where we find victory he gives us power over the flesh which is really amazing we were at one point defined by flesh and now Paul is saying especially in chapter 1 you are now defined by God's spirit because he lives in you and is the guarantee of what is to come so Paul tells us then what it means to be defined by flesh. He says to carry out the passions or lusts of the flesh. That is, that, that there's a part of me that just has an appetite for what God does not like. Right? There's a part of me that has an appetite for what I have an appetite for. Right? And I'm going to just go headlong into it. It's kind of what it means to live according to the flesh. You know, have you ever had kind of this inexplicable desire to satisfy your flesh? And, and I don't... I don't necessarily mean like to like go have sex with somebody that's not your spouse. That's a bit too obvious, right? But I mean, to send that text message that inserts that little jab at that person to make sure they know they messed up and you're right, or to offer that glance that says, I told you so, right? Again, that just a little bit of moral superiority there that just tears somebody else down. Or overspending on some shoes that you just didn't have the money for. In fact, you owed somebody else some money, and so you just, but you had to have it. Or like maybe... That bit of tasty gossip, just got to make sure I feed that. Just feels good, right? Or to play those one-up games with the other folks at work or the other families in your community. Oh, you raise your kid like that? Hmm. That's flesh talking. That's flesh, okay? To take away all the insane images of like just gnarly sin and think about the subtle things. That's flesh too, right? Both and. Now, um, what are the lusts of the flesh, right? It's every kind of distorted desire 
that runs along this road that's sponsored by devil and world. Okay? And uh, it's, it's as much when I... Uh, live for my own comfort at the expense of justice as it is when I want someone else's stuff or someone else's spouse. It's as much when I run from my problems rather than working through them as it is when I trash somebody else's reputation. See, it works across the spectrum because flesh touches on all of us. And there's an important distinction here too. The passions of the flesh aren't necessarily what are sometimes called the sins of the flesh, where we kind of pick on the body. Say, like, all those things that the body desires are, like, bad. It's the mind where there's, that's where real spirituality is. That's nonsense in biblical language, okay? Like, God affirms and gives some desires to the body that are good, right? So, like, food is affirmed, sleep, I drink, sex, those are good things according to Scripture. It's when we take them out of the context that God has formed for them, that things go bad. It's when food turns into gluttony and drink turns into drunkenness and sleep turns into slothfulness and sex turns into lust. It's then that the good thing is distorted into a bad thing that's destructive and sinful and gets us further down the road away from God. And so it's important here to see both body and mind as the place that is messed up. Okay? It's not like if you just get good, pure, rational thought in your brain, you're going to become this good, ethical person. It doesn't work like that. God says, our minds are messed up as much as our bodies, okay? And so, um, all of it needs redemption, right? The flesh causes a whole range of distortions in the mind, right? Everything from anxious thoughts, fear, shame, to full-on delusions, and all of it needs God's grace and spirit to be restored. Then, um, not only that, we uh, we get to this idea here that when we look at these three things, We can't say the world made me do it or the devil made me do it. We have to take responsibility for our flesh, right? And say, this is my choice and I need to take, I need to be held accountable to what my choices do, right? Now, before Paul gets into this amazing life transforming uh, good news about what God has done to let us know the end, he he also lets us know the end result, right? Of all of our walking in the wrong direction and trespass and sin according to world, devil, and flesh. He says, you were by nature children of wrath. I think NIV says objects of wrath. It's children of wrath. Now, and then he says, like the rest of mankind. Now, this is one of those places when we read the Bible, we kind of think, that's a bit strong. Like, really? Children of wrath? Did you need to say that? I mean, what does the real, what does the Greek say? Couldn't be that. Nope, yep, says children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All right? So trust your translator. Um, Children of wrath seems so strong. First of all, we've been dealing with all these love descriptions of God up to this point. What's this wrath thing doing here? First thing is, love and wrath are not mutually exclusive. They, they don't counsel, cancel each other out. In fact, they work together. I mean, have you ever had like a wrath in you at something just wrong and evil because of your love? Right? Like, I just, I love my kid and I am like, rightfully angry at their choice at sin right now because it's harmful for everybody, right? You know, this is, this is so important for us because we want to shy away from this word altogether because we think it's like God's a crazy person because he has wrath. In fact, wrath reveals how incredibly loving he is, right? It's the end result of his faithful love. If God had no wrath for a road paved with every kind of selfish, evil, unjust, shalom-violating inclination of mankind, what kind of love would that be? 
See, it's God's love that yearns for the best for creation. He says, I want what's best for creation. So he's, of course, going to be rightfully upset at everything that destroys and breaks down and disintegrates what is good for creation. Amen? This is justice. This is good. If you, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you, you wouldn't want a God without any kind of wrath for evil, would you? But keep in mind, this is not capricious wrath. This is not fly-off-the-handle anger that we see in ourselves. But this is Exodus 34, slow-to-anger wrath that comes after compassion and grace and slow-to-anger and steadfast love and abounding faithfulness and forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's wrath that ends up on those who continue to refuse the mercy of God. If you want a full treatment on wrath, go to read Romans 1 through 3. This is one of those places in Scripture where you realize something scary about God's wrath. What it is, is God saying, fine, you can have what you want. That's how you recognize wrath. He said, I'm going to let you make your own choice. And it happens to be in a very destructive direction. We see the wrath of God because he's let people have what they want, which is a scary kind of reality, isn't it? Especially when we want what world, devil, and flesh cry out for. Which is why we need God's grace so much to transform what we desire. Children of wrath is a phrase that means people deserving and liable of wrath. He adds by nature, right? which is interesting. Our natural inclination is to just run headlong down the wrong road. Say, I'm going to do my own thing. But then he adds this, like the rest of mankind. So, okay, if you're here today and you put grades on sin, if you're like, you have the kind of mindset that you're like, I can put grades on sin, I'm pretty good at it, actually. You're kind of maybe proud of it. Maybe you're struggling with it, I don't know. But if, if there's kind of a mindset where you're like, you know what, some sin just stinks more than others, more than mine, right? Go back and read this passage again. Like the rest of mankind. <laughs> All of us are equal under sin. Everyone is indicted. There are no better or worse ways to be a child of wrath. All of them are bad. You don't want to be on that side. So the focus, though, of the text is amazing. The subject is you. The main verb is God made alive. Yes, the wrath provides the backdrop. Yes, the world, devil, and flesh paving the road away from God provides the backdrop. But this is an amazing text that says, while you are headed just confidently down that road, what God has done in Christ is he has, in fact, reached in and done something amazing. Paul moves from righteous wrath into rich mercy and great love in a sentence. These aren't contradictions, right? This is about the mercy of God and his love for saving sinners. This is what he does. And the funny thing about being dead is you have zero power to raise yourself up, right? Okay. Like, dead people stay dead and have been staying dead for thousands of years. We know this. That is why it is an utter miracle that Jesus rose from the dead and chooses to resurrect us spiritually and one day fully physically where we'll be free from world flesh and devil. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we find? We find this God who is rich in mercy and we find his power and his pleasure 
to save people from their plight. Read with me verse 4 and following. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now these are two of my favorite words paired together. But God. But God. What an amazing word pair. I mean, think with me, will you, for a second? What do these words mean for you in your life? But God. I mean... Where would you be if God had not butted in with a but God? Where would you be? My marriage was a disaster, but God. I was lost in addiction, but God. <laughs> my career was everything. I was alienating my family and my friends, but God. I was lonely, but God. My life was full of activity and empty of meaning, but God. I lost the person closest to me, but God. And the list goes on, right? Goes on. But God, such amazing words. We find three things in this text that are just incredible. What God has done, how God has done it, and why God has done it. First of all, what has God done? Being rich in mercy because of his great love even when we were dead, made us alive with Christ Jesus. God resurrects us with Christ. We're made alive with Christ. The power that rose Jesus from the dead, exalted him to the right hand of the Father, has done the same in you. Raised you up alongside Jesus, even when you were dead. Cut off spiritually, a walking dead person. Now you are a walking, resurrected, living in Christ person. This is what scripture has to say about your identity if you are a Christ follower. This is what love is. This is what love does. He resurrects, unites, exalts, and seats and shows off all of his amazing grace and kindness. This is who God is. Remember, this. Uh, we, we talked about this in December, if you can remember that far back. Uh, why We hope in the name of God, what is his name? He's Yahweh, and then he describes himself. He is the compassionate and gracious, right? the slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining his steadfast love to thousands of generations, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. Right? And... By no means clearing the guilty, that is, those who refuse his mercy. So what on earth kind of God is this? This is a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in love. And you know what he likes to do? He likes to save us, right? He's, he's pleased with that. So we meet this God face to face in Jesus, and we are joined to him relationally and spiritually forever through Jesus' resurrection and sending of his spirit. In a word, what God has done is he has saved Right? By grace you have been saved. What, a, what an amazing word. This means you have been rescued from a serious peril or danger. And this is so much more than just being free from accusation. Right? While that is great, 
Right? This is about resurrection. It's about a new life, a Jesus kind of life. That is what God has done. Resurrection is what turns us around. Resurrection turns us from our headlong journey away from God. And it turns us back into walking in resurrection country alongside Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus. Walking in the good works prepared for us in advance that we hear about in verse 10. Right? God's making us alive is what gets us walking in the right direction, not our own amazing intuition, not our own moralistic effort, but Christ and Christ alone. Um, you know, more than that, he's also seated us with Christ, which is a, a relational word that says you have power and authority over world and devil. That there is they no longer have the final word. You're seated with Christ, who is the victor. doesn't mean that you're not vulnerable, but it means that you are able to be free of bondage to sin and death and devil. We're also reminded in this section how God has done this. This is incredible stuff. This resurrection saving has happened by grace. That is how it has happened. Next week, you're going to hear uh, verses 8 through 10. And it's this incredible description of grace through faith, what God has done. He's made you a new creation, right? By grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace is unearned favor, freely given by an unobligated giver. And we receive it. It has to be received and embraced and grasped. One of the early church fathers, um, a guy named Tertullian, is reported to have said at one point, while Christ was crucified between two thieves, the gospel is continually crucified between two errors. On one side is legalism, and the other hand is lawlessness. Or as Tim Keller says, religion and irreligion, or moralism and relativism. And That is to say, on the one hand, and the legalist says, I have to be holy and righteous and good in order to be saved. And the lawless person says, saved, so what? I don't have to do anything different, right? Um, I can continue to live as I blame God for making me, right? And so, uh, one one of these says, it's on me. The other one says, it's on God, but I I don't have any part in this, right? And so the gospel declares that we are saved completely and totally and utterly by grace. That is, everything is done on our behalf by Jesus, done by grace alone through faith alone. But Martin Luther's famous phrase is completely apt here. He said at one point that we are uh, saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. You see, what grace does is it transforms This amazing acceptance by God does something to us. It relationally changes us so that we want to please the one who saved us. We begin to want the other road, right? We begin to want what he wants. The theological word for this is regeneration. There is a new life in you because of Christ. And then finally, Paul tells us why God has rescued us. Why why would he do this? See, God is not only merciful. He is full of steadfast love. And you can have mercy on somebody and want nothing to do with them, right? You know what that's like? Like, I'll give you mercy. I'm not going to give you the consequence that you deserve, but I don't want anything to do with you. Like uh, in the Count of Monte Cristo, the main character, Edmond Dantes, is 
um, wrongfully imprisoned because his, fr- his friend frames him and takes his girl. He's uh, like that. And so Fernand, this guy who imprisons him in the Chateau d'If forever, you know, and um, is this, this kind of wicked guy. And so Edmond Dantes, his whole like orientation towards life is get back at Fernand, you know, get retribution. And at the end, he gives him mercy. But you don't see him riding away in a carriage together, right? They're not best friends, right? In fact, I think Fernand dies, right? Anyway, not at the hand of Dantes, though. So anyway, he gets mercy, but there's no relationship there. Well, God, he's not like that. He's like, I'm abounding in mercy, but my mercy is motivated by my love because I want to be with you. I want to be in relationship with you. That's who God is, right? His love motivates his mercy. He sets his desire on us to be with us. And that motivates a saving action. And then there's this, this other piece of why God has done it. God does this to show his incomparable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He wants to show off his grace. Like, absolutely, please do. Right? Please do. And part of the goal in Paul's blessing in 1, 3 through 14 is, that the, is the praise of God's glory. Here in 2, 7, we see how it happens. He puts us on display. As, as display items for his grace and kindness, right? There's this adjective here that Paul uses, this immeasurable or incomparable or surpassing riches of his grace, right? God is not coming up short on grace in your life, not in mine, not in anyone's. Incomparable. There is no parallel to this amount of grace that God has toward us, toward you. Not only does God have power to save us from being the walking dead, he takes pleasure in it. He loves this. Takes great delight and pleasure in doing so, and he's gracious and kind in doing so. He doesn't hold it over us. He invites us to be with him in relationship. How, does, how do we do this? How do we walk in response to this? How do we walk in response to this resurrection life? You see... This is where we are now. We're resurrected people. So we walk out resurrection. He raised us up with Jesus, and we are now called to live as new creations, as those who've been made alive. What do we do? The first thing is you've got to take account of what road you're actually traveling. Right? Am I walking according to trespass and sin? Am I going my own way, confident and content with the scenery? Or am I really am I moving toward God right? from where I am? Right? Maybe you're like me, you've blown 30 miles past the exit and you've got a, you've got a choice to make. Right? Do I change destinations and say, why bother? Or, or do I do what Scripture summons, which is to confess, I've, I'm 30 miles in the wrong direction in my marriage, 30 miles in the wrong direction with my use of money, 30 miles in the wrong direction my relationship with my kids. Maybe I'm just, I'm in the wrong direction. I've never even given God consideration or maybe I have and I kind of felt like he let me down so I just said you know forget you take account of the road you're traveling ask him to change your path today to make you alive to shower you with his grace to save you he delights in doing so maybe you're you're here and you know Jesus and there's this pattern of sin in your life and you just need to say okay I'm going to confess it and I'm going to allow God's grace to heal me and turn me around toward the things of God.
Where is the world and the devil and the flesh pushing and pulling and cheering you on away from Christ? Maybe it's in some great behaviors that make you feel really self-righteous. Even lay that down today, especially. Do you know somebody who's confidently lost, headed in the wrong direction, who's just saying, I'm content with this road? Maybe they don't even know there is a road paved with grace. Pray for them. Keep praying for them. And tell them your story. Be a display object of grace. And tell them what it has meant for you that God has indeed stepped in and made you alive. Secondly, focus on grace today. Be a person who delights in grace. By the way, I'm going to invite the middle schoolers now to get up and go get ready to bring us communion. So thank you, middle schoolers, for your faithfulness in that. We're going to celebrate grace in just a moment. Be a person who celebrates grace. That just means, look, stop trying to outdo what God has done for you. Receive it. Be passive here. Allow him to be the one who makes you right and take joy in what God's done. And then finally, do you see the purposes of every moment uh, as being a person on display for God's grace? That everything in life is to to the end of being somebody who points glory back to God for actually his amazing kindness and grace? Like, don't you want to be the kind of person that the people around you say, thank God he has transformed them with grace? Right? I do. Yeah, absolutely. I have no pride here when it comes to like, yeah, I'm, I'm a mess left to myself. I'm a walking dead person, but God's made me alive. Let's celebrate that, right? Um, I guess this uh, uh, one of the the professors at Oxford at one point had a portrait made of him as he was retiring, and he he made the remark at one point that the the painting was so beautiful. He said, "I really just want everybody to say who is that artist, not who is that man." And uh, the plaque on the wall was about the artist because see the the point of our lives isn't us. And so people would see the artist, the gracious, kind artist who is forming us and making us into resurrected people who live like Jesus. And so we do that. We want to live humble lives in our neighborhood and in your workplace and uh, the places you go to recreate. Be a display object of grace. Point people toward the Savior. We're going to take communion now and celebrate what God has done. I'm going to invite the band to come up. They're going to lead us in the song, but just at first, come on forward, you guys. Uh, just take these, these two things in your hand, the bread and the cup that remind us of Christ's body and blood. I would like you to just sit. We'll take these elements together after this song, but sit before the Lord and ask Him uh, to help show you what it means that there's a but God in your life. Right? Uh, tell Him what it means to you that he has made you alive. Uh, be nourished in the presence of Christ and his grace today as you hold on to these two elements that remind you of the cost of what God has done to make us alive. Well, let's uh, hold on to them and we'll take them together in a moment.